welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time. We do so by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. I'm joined today by the wonderful film critic Kristen Lopez, whose views on films you can find on numerous podcasts, and also she's written for several publications, including The Hollywood Reporter, RogerEbert.com, Daily Beast, Slash Film. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. And one thing we should point out about Kristen, actually I say two things, because we're recording this a little in advance, just due to the holiday schedules, but one, you were featured in a great piece by the LA Times on diversity in regards to film criticism, so definitely go to the latimes.com to check that article. And is it okay for me to say that you're the unofficial best friend of The Rock? (laughs) And I I use unofficial for legal purposes, but I saw him give you a sweet shout out. I keep saying that I am slowly becoming the unofficial best friend of a lot of people. So like I think I think The Rock and I are friends. I think Tessa Thompson and I are friends because we talk. I just saw Blind Spotty the other day, so I'm pretty sure me and Rafael Casal are friends because we talk very briefly on Twitter. So yeah, I think I think The Rock and I are bips. Those are some nice people to to have in your corner, you know. If you exactly. need to yeah. hang yeah. out, go get a latte or something. <laughs> oh, that that is awesome. Paula is definitely my best friend though. <laughs> Uh, my regular co-host, Andrew Hathaway, is on hiatus for the year, but you can still support his work by visiting Can'tStopTheMovies.com. Uh, we like to start off each episode by highlighting a short film that you can watch online for free. Our short film today is Dylan by Elizabeth Robaugh. It's a 2004 short that follows a transgendered man named Dylan as he makes his way to Coney Island. Kristen, what did you think of this film? I thought this was was unique. It was definitely a different way to present kind of the life experience of someone as opposed to doing it narratively and telling a story or a straightforward talking head documentary. You're watching the day in the life of this person as they're telling you about, you know, the the changes that their life has undergone. So so you follow Dylan as he walks through, you know, the streets and and just goes about his day which I thought was was a different way of presenting kind of these slice-of-life narratives. It kind of fooled me at first because I didn't realize that it was a narrative, um, well, I guess you could say documentary narrative hybrid, but I, I when I first started watching, I just thought it was like a straightforward doc. And then there was a few moments where it's like, like, you know, your brain starts to inkle a bit and go, wait, something's not quite right. And at the end of it, I actually did proper reading of the, the synopsis, and I realized that Dylan is played by a transgendered actor named Becca Blackwell and the the real there is a real life Dylan that the director knows but I guess it was a childhood friend that she once knew as Emily and then transitioned to Dylan and I guess this was based off of a two-hour conversation that they they had about the experience and I guess they just kind of formed this whole narrative and I I like the film it's it's a very easygoing short and what I also liked about it is as you said it is a slice of life but it's a positive slice of life it doesn't shy away from some of the complications that Dylan had and you know some of the emotional down points but when I was looking for shorts to fit our feature film today I noticed that a lot of short films I was coming across that deal with either um, the LGBT community uh, transgender specifically young people teenagers there was always like a negative spin on it there was some act of violence a lot of them were really depressing and this one felt invigorating just because it was so so bouncy like you know Dylan is portrayed and feels like a, a real person yeah it's definitely I didn't know any of that so I'm, I'm glad that you shared that because I think now that totally changes how I take it it is like watching you know one of those YouTube shorts and YouTube 
YouTube and, and shorts like these are doing a really great job of kind of distilling these tough topics into a nice little bite size like eight minutes. So so watching Dylan's story play out and, you know, just the the difference of what I think most cis uh, people you know, would would say, you know, oh, it goes back to to kind of contextualize for me the the concept of like disability, where you know, oh, it's just all doom and gloom. You know, everything about your life is really sad, and that's not really the case in this short. It, you know, there are elements of of Dylan's story that yeah are are tough to listen to, but he's recounting things about you know just watching Singing in the Rain with his mom and and just having this this nice moment. You know, there and he's sharing that you know what works for him does not work for everybody. And and so I like that it's kind of showing the the realities of the situation without sensationalizing, nor without putting this nice sugar-coated spin to everything. Yes, and I also like that Dylan's very open and honest about the loves that he's had in his in his life and the ones that he had to play a certain role to kind of please the individuals who were still kind of trying to figure out their their gender identity and you know the the ones that he he really fell in love with and due to like trivial arguments the whole relationship kind of collapsed like those are things that we can really identify with you know we've all had that either crush or person that we thought might be the one, maybe just the one for a couple of months, what have you. And that felt true and honest. And I also like that Robot cast Becca Blackwell in this role because we've seen in the last couple of weeks a lot of heated debate over transgender stories not being told by transgender people. And everyone say, well, you know, like, was it Justine Bateman had a couple of tweets about yeah. how, the, how the old adage of, well, if you want these things told, you need to have an A-list star, i.e. a Scarlett Johansson, what have you. And then you guys can you know, be supporting characters, and that's how you break in. And it's like, this is what we're trying to change in cinema. These are the discussions that we're having on Twitter so that this type of mentality changes. And here, Blackwell does a really good job with the role, like to the point where I didn't even realize it was an actor. You know, and it's yeah. not, it's not that hard. If the story is good and you have people willing to to put money behind it, you know, it will find an audience. Right, and and I've I heard that a lot this week with my my article that I wrote about The Rock and the concept of like name recognition in a movie is only ever really trotted out when they when they don't want to have to explain certain things about why we don't do certain things with films. So you know, name recognition is kind of irrelevant in, in those situations because you still have name actors that could play parts you know the case of Scarlett Johansson she was producing it could have sold it on being a producer didn't have to star in it you know does here's a great example that I always say when people say oh you know name recognition The Rock is playing a side character in Shazam anybody know who the hell is playing Shazam Zachary Levi but does do most people know who Zachary Levi is? No, they don't. So name recognition in this instance really means nothing. So yeah, watching watching this, especially this week, was really relevant. It, it's funny because I didn't know Zachary Levi was playing the leader. I, knew, I just knew that The Rock was in it, so that's a perfect example right there. And also, when I hear that argument about name recognition or you need an A-lister, I look at the people that they refer to, and I think of like Scarlett Johansson's career. I think of Jennifer Lawrence. I, you know, A lot of these people who, they didn't start off as A-listers. 
Yeah. They start off because someone gave them a break. When Winter's Bone happened, she wasn't in, Jennifer Lawrence wasn't an A-lister by then. It, she was just an actress that the director thought, you're perfect for this role, and the rest is history. Like, this this whole idea that you can't have a, a film without a big name, or the director's doing something marvelous by having a big-budget film, you know, big-budget studio backing, and then they've decided that they want someone new. They want someone unknown. It's like, well, that's fine, but you've got, you've already got the big name director and everyone else behind it, so it's still an easy, easy cop out to show that you're going that way. So I don't know. It's, it's one of these arguments that I think we're gonna still have for a long time, but at least, hopefully, incidents like this will help change. And short films like this might start bringing people's attentions to, you know, having more feature films. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm hoping, I remain hopeful that by before I die, I will actually see things like this rectified. <laughs> so just because we're short on time this week, do you want to jump to the the feature? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to take a quick moment to change the reels and we'll be back with our feature film of the day. Our main film for today is the Oscar-nominated film Call Me By Your Name, directed by Luca Guadagnino. Set in Italy in 1983, the film centers around the romance between a 17-year-old boy named Elio and Oliver, the slightly older man who is working as a research assistant for his father during the summer. Kristen, we're both big fans of this film, and t- normally on this show we tend to do underappreciated and overlooked films, but occasionally we do talk about the occasional blockbuster, and we're going to have a few films that we talk about that are Oscar-nominated, so I don't know if this is really the overlooked category but would you put this under in the underappreciated it's very difficult to say <laughs> I, I think the people that appreciate it appreciate it a lot a lot but i mean I'm, i know there are people that that don't like it that have issues with it or will just not see it so i don't know I just really wanted to talk about it, so I, I will be the first to admit that I might have violated the rules by suggesting it. But you know what? You didn't violate the rules at all because I was itching to rewatch this as well. And as I said, we have had times where we've we've talked about blockbuster films, and we have just talked about films that we want to revisit. So this is a perfect example, and I'm happy to die to dive into it. I, I will say, when I first saw this film, um, I guess it was just before TIFF. It was like at a at a pre-screening that they had for the festival, and I remember. Remember, I had remembered a conversation that I had earlier in the year with a local film critic, and she had seen the film at Sundance, and she was raving about it. Uh, but and in raving about it, she was also kind of giving Moonlight a bit of a knock. And I'm not going to get into that whole Moonlight, um, call me by your name debate because I think they're two separate films. I love them both. I think they're both masterful in their own way. But one of the things that she said that had stuck with me was Moonlight is a type of film that she sees all the time, especially in European cinema. There's nothing new, nothing exciting. Whereas this film, you know, this film is art. It was taking things to a different level. And I remember the first half of this film, when I first saw it, I was sitting there going, well, you know, this to me, this feels like the type of European art film that you would normally see. I think Moonlight was at least offering something slightly different because you don't you don't only see that side of blackmail sexuality but then there's a I don't know there's a point in the middle where this film goes from oh you know this is a lovely experience to oh this is masterful you know like you just completely fall in love with the characters I don't know if it's the setting or just the performances or the way how the story unfolds but it's just a 
heartbreakingly beautiful romance. I, I'm pretty sure I would be one of the stands for this movie. I, I love it so very, very, very much. I went and saw this probably in the best way possible. I went and saw this at Five Fest in the Grauman's Chinese Theater. So, and I went with a friend who, who knew I had been talking about wanting to see this movie since Sundance. And, and by the time I had gotten to see it, every critic I knew had already seen it, some more than twice, which I was really upset about. So, so me going to see this movie was a really big deal. And my friend kept looking at me at certain points during the movie and she was like, you were just so happy. <laughs> that you got to see this and I love it I love this movie I think if you if you look at the grand history of like LGBT cinema there's there's really things that we all know about and and the producer on this film Hal Roseman actually directed probably the most well comprehensive for for American cinema look at homosexuality in film in the celluloid closet if you haven't seen it you should watch it but but most people know the tropes of of these types of movies where it's like it's really depressing you're not accepted it's this whole concept where your sexuality is something to overcome or adapt to or mitigate or something like that and that's not the case here you know it's even though it's 1983 i think it said in, in in italy it's the fact that there's this freedom to sexuality that you can explore whatever you want nobody's gonna die at the end of this movie nobody gets aids or anything it doesn't turn into rent yeah you know, the parents are very accepting um and it and it does have that fairy tale quality i think but for me i think it transcends sexuality and it's just this fairy tale type of relationship that everybody you know wants i i can if i was a 13 year old girl watching this movie oh my god i'd have i'd have lost it i'd have been like oh my god where's my army hammer i want well actually i'm still like that and i'm not 13 anymore but but i think that's what makes the movie so appealing it, and it's really funny because james ivory has not so silently kind of backhanded this movie and he wrote the script for it but oh, really yeah yeah um there and there's he backhanded it in the sense that he um was really chastising um the fact that there's no nudity in it and and how you know these actors he wanted it to be real and there should have been nudity and per the clauses in the actors contracts there was none and and so that was kind of his big takeaway um, and then after a certain point, he just got really tired of it. And when I went to TCM this year, the Classic Film Festival, James Ivory was there and he showed Morris, which is the movie that is kind of like the close cousin to this film. And I watched it and I was like, you can see the Merchant Ivory-ness to, to Call Me By Your Name. Yes. But you can also see very blatantly where what people gravitate towards, and I think what people who come to love the movie really notice, is the Guadagnino stuff, which is the fun and the frivolity and the whimsy. Because Morris, very dour movie. <laughs> it's a beautiful movie, but it's a very, very, like, repressed film. And I think what a lot of people like about this movie is just how freeing it is, how beautiful it is, how much it revels in not just the location, but the body. I mean, this movie is a really gazy type of movie that just, like, revels in objectifying Army Hammer. And it's, it's great because you don't see that. It's a very asexual gaze. You know, you can watch it as a female and be like, oh, my God, it's so great to... And I'm not saying objectification is good, but with 100 years of film history and, and women being objectified in all of it, 
I'm I'm okay with a little a little male objectification every now and then. You know, you're more than entitled, considering the uh, the amount of cinema that has been produced and is still being produced that objectifies women. Uh, one thing I want to just double back on though is when you said that you know it, it's not depressing and you know no one's objecting to the relationship. I, I agree with you in that aspect. They they still make a point of highlighting that at least for Oliver. Right. He still knows the time and the period that they're in. But he's also grown up more in America, too. Yes, yes. And that was what I was just about to say. The The European landscape allows him to be a little more free. Him to give Elio certain signals that Elio completely misses because he's young and not quite as experienced there's that great scene where they're i think they're laying in the field and they start kissing passionately and oliver stops him and says okay we haven't done anything wrong just yet you know let's let's end here because he's still wrestling with it in his mind you know he he clearly is attracted to elio and you know wants to take it further but then part of him the american side of him if you will keeps holding him back somewhat and it, it's interesting to see that dynamic especially with elio who at the beginning is kind of like ah whatever who's this guy that everyone's talking about but as you said the gaze the gaze in the body right the, you know the the wonderful joy scene where army uh, oliver is dancing and elio's kind of waiting for a bit and he's like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna dance too and it's almost like they're they're putting their bodies on display for each other while still kind of being coy about it like there's there's so much subtlety to the the building sexual tension in this film that it's just wonderful yeah there is so much i love about this movie and the army hammer dancing is it's it was the dance scene of last year for me in terms of things that i just was in love with because army hammer is such a goober when he dances and he hated doing that but i think it makes the movie really work and the elio character timothy chalamet who I've been near, and he is delightful. He, his character transcends age, I think, for a lot of people, in that he's got this awkwardness to him, this attempt to be cool that just really doesn't come off very well. So, like, in the dance scene, when he decides to dance, he's really, like, aware that he's near Oliver, but Oliver's not aware of him. So when he starts doing his little body roll and all of that, it's very cute, but you're like, guy, he's not looking at you. <laughs> So it's, it's very awkward, you know, that whole concept of like being into somebody but not really knowing how to tell them, especially if there's sexuality to navigate and you're not really sure. I think that's very, very poignant. We should get the elephant out of the room because I think when I bring it up on Twitter, a lot of people immediately jump on, it's a movie about pedophiles. And I have to deal with that in a very weird way. I have a friend, my friend who saw this with me said that she likes it, but she can't get over the age difference. Seven years between the two of them. But Timothy Chalamet was 18 when he made this movie. So technically the actor was legal. And there's a lot of people who complain over the age gap. Did that, did that bother you? personally in this movie it doesn't bother me it didn't bother me at all and i think it's because i was so wrapped up in the love story that was unfolding like i knew there was the age difference because you know obviously oliver's working for elio's father for the summer but i fell so quickly into the rhythms of their their back and forth that by time they really start feeling each other emotionally i was already wrapped up in it and it was funny because the the great speech at the end that elio's father gives i was talking to a local film critic up, up here um, who happens to be gay and he was saying that that would never happen because of the age difference he's like no father would willingly let their son be with an older man especially 
teenager. And it was only after he said that that I kind of started thinking, I'm like, you know, as a, I probably wouldn't be as cool with it. But again, you never know until you're actually in that situation, right? And just seeing how their relationship unfolds, it, it didn't bother me. I can, I understand people's argument regarding that, but I think you're basically overlooking the, the bigger message in the film. Yeah, I, and I say this as someone who unabashedly loves Lolita. And if you've seen the 97 version of Lolita, it's a movie that is very cringe-inducing, as it should be. But mind you, that is a heterosexual pedophile. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I understand the, the gay critics who came out after this movie who said, yeah, it's just, it's stereotypical to have it be an older guy, you know, and, and I get that. I get that. That's a very valid criticism. And the fact that Army Hammer is old looking 27, I mean... <laughs> I love him, but even I knew, I was like, we're pushing what 27 looks like, aren't we? I get that. I get all of that. To say, though, that it promotes pedophilia, I think is completely has to do with, with the person's feelings towards sexuality in general. I've seen what pedophilia can look like on screen, and if you watch the 97 version of Lolita, that's a pedophile. There's nothing lecherous about the relationship. You know, it's Army Hammer's not in the corner jerking off to to this young boy. The gaze is never from Army Hammer's character on Timothy Chalamet. It's completely the other way around. And I think that that helps a lot. As much as James Ivory goes on about how we needed nudity, I think the fact that Timothy Chalamet is so young when he is playing 17, it's actually beneficial and it removes that lecherousness to not have him be nude. Um, even though we get a backside, it's um, we're talking actual nudity here. So I, I don't see it as a movie that promotes, you know, pedophilia. And no crime, I think, is being broken in this. And I want to say legally, I think in Italy, 17 is legal. I mean, again, going, that could be somebody saying, oh, you're just, you're mitigating. And maybe, maybe I am. Um, again, I watch Lolita. So that, that is definitely illegal. There's no rhyme or reason about that. So, so I don't see that it's promoting that lifestyle at all you know it, it's a movie that i think again transcends sexuality and if it was just to to women you know to to girls i think the movie probably would have ignored a lot had it not mentioned age and i get the criticisms from again gay writers who say it's just stereotypical to do because that's that's what a lot of narratives like that have done yes that's valid but to say this movie is about a pedophile no no i don't do that at all i think also it has to do with just how we've been conditioned in cinema because i find i'm more disturbed when I see older men and younger women, and even if the women are legal, just because we've been so inundated. Like when I see a Woody Allen film and he's with a, a 20, a, a just turned 20 or 21 year old, you know, and they're walking around as if this is normal. That it's, We all know what Woody Allen's past is like. You yes, know, that's true. Is promoting his personal life. But even uh, before, which, even before yeah. we knew that, like I yeah. would, it would weird me out. And, and a lot of that, I mean, I understand people who said the criticisms could have been mitigated by by mentioning that Chalamet was 18. The character is 18. Mm -hmm. And I mean that, yeah, that's that's very true. But you're right. I mean, we've conditioned people to believe, you know, that it's okay for Tom Cruise to have a leading lady 20, 30 years his senior. You know, Jennifer Lawrence, I think there was a, a graph that charted her age to the men she's playing opposite, and it's at least 25, 30 years. We've seen that. We've seen that throughout history. Yeah, Woody Allen movies are the biggest offender. I don't know how anybody can say this movie promotes pedophilia, but yet Allen gets a pass because his personal life comes 
comes through in his films. This is something that was written down in a novel by Andre Asimov based on his experiences. And I know that we're we're using examples where even if they're young, the women are of age. And I know there's a bunch of films that outside of Lolita that deal with that underage dynamics. Uh, yeah, go watch Kids, because if you think this movie is bad, the stories about making that movie are, I'm surprised no one got arrested. You know, those are the, the, that's something that's a great example. To this day, Kids still gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Like, I, I think it's a great film, but... When you hear about what was happening on set... Yeah, exactly, it, yeah. It takes, yeah. And and again, if you've seen the, the version of Lolita, again, I'm not talking 62, because in 62... Sue Lyons was, I think, like 23. You're she talking like the 30. Jeremy Irons one, right? Yeah, I'm talking about the Jeremy Irons one with Dominique Swain, who was 14 at the time. And and you watch that movie, which the gaze is in. It's all about where the, the power of the camera is supposed to lie. The power of the camera in that movie is on him looking at her. And I think a lot of people forget that if you watch that movie, you're not supposed to be sympathizing with his character. And the movie does a lot of subtle things with her through her character where you're realizing, like, this is fucking horrid. This is wrong. But you don't notice that because I think you're just, you know, naturally conditioned or disgusted by what's being being placed on screen. Whereas the power in Call Me By Your Name is always firmly on Elio. You know, it's always his decision making, his agency. You want a really great example of a movie that got that got screen time for horrific, horrific shit. Go watch Mute on Netflix, which is still my number one worst movie of, of 2018, which has a pedophile character who oh, is really? utterly reprehensible. And I'm still very upset that I had to watch that. Well, you know, that's been in my Netflix queue for months, but I, and I haven't got around to it, but okay. Cause I heard a lot of bad things, but I was still kind of curious to see if it's as bad as everyone says it is. It is, it is terrible. It is terrible. But there is a pedophile character in that movie that has no reason. They use pedophilia like, you know, like this guy has blonde hair. You know, it has no reason to exist other than I don't know why. I literally cannot, cannot say it. Um, and I mean, again, I've seen Lolita, but nothing cringes me more than watching Mute, which I think just just totally bypasses the line of good taste. Mm -hmm. And what did you think, since we're on the topic of age and, and consent, what, what did you think of how the parents are portrayed in this film? Because they're very much, for the most part, silent observers, but they they seem quicker to figure out what's going on and what should be happening between these two than the two lead characters are. Yeah, I, I love both of them. I'm still very upset that Michael Stuhlbarg did not get nominated for an Academy Award, but I watched this movie a lot, and I know that Michael Stuhlbarg gets the majority of the praise, and he's great. I think a lot of people really gravitate towards him because, again, going off of film history, the, the father is not expected to be accepting That's true. Um, of his son's sexuality. And, and the speech that he gives at the end again, transcend sexuality, you know, and it's that whole concept of, like, I'm going to love you regardless, seize life because there's going to come a point where, you know, you can't, you might not be able to fall in love as easily. Um, but uh, who, the one I really think is the unsung hero is Amira Kassar, who plays the mom. Um, and I know a lot of people criticized the character. They were like, oh, she's just a silent observer. She doesn't do anything. She really does. If you watch the movie as many times as I have, you'll notice 
she is very self-aware. You know, she she's commenting on things. She's interjecting herself in the conversation. She's the one. It's in the book, actually. The person who suggests that Oliver and Elio go on that trip at the end of the movie, it's the dad. And they switched it in the book or in the movie and made it the mom who's the one who suggests it. And when Elio calls home at the end of the movie, he doesn't, he calls his mom. His mom is the one who picks him up. So I think that to say that she is unaware, she's totally unaware, especially at the end, you know, when, when Oliver calls at the end of the movie and he discloses that he's going to get married, the parents both look at each other. They are both equally aware of what has happened. So yeah, I think I like that there be silent presences who, you know, aren't going to give advice, who aren't going to dictate anything. It's just let these kids make their own mistake. If it is a mistake, you know, they'll realize that at some point. And I, I really like them. I think both don't get enough credit for how progressive they are. I just watched Love, Simon the other day, which is another, probably is a more unsung movie than this one is. But, you know, watching the parents in that film in Call Me By Your Name, it's it's very interesting how they're similar yet very different. Mm-hmm. And there's, I remember there's a part where Oliver does like a, a simple gesture of grabbing Elio's wrist just to see the time. And I love that scene. The, and the mother's yeah. there and she knows all the little tricks that they're doing. She sees everything. And, you know, when she's reading, I think it was the, the French play, was it, that she was reading about the knight who... German, I think. German, who, who who doesn't say anything. Like, you know, she's the one kind of leading that. So when the father has that great speech at the end, of, you know, when Elio says, well, did mom know that you had this tense encounter with a male? And the father says, no, I don't, you know, she doesn't know. And I'm thinking, she probably does. She's, yeah, it's, I, I always interpret it as a lie. If you read the original script that James Ivory wrote, there's instructions that say it's a lie. So oh, okay. I, I always read it as, yeah, he's telling him that as a kindness, but it's it's not true. And, and yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting that I think we give Michael Stuhlbarg's character the majority of the, the guidance of that relationship at the end purely because we expect mothers to be sympathetic, you know? Yeah, um, that's right. We're, we're, getting, we're getting a movie right now about gay conversion, um, Boy Erased, and the whole the whole impetus of that movie is showing the, the struggle between the son and the father over sexuality. So, you know, I think we're still stuck in that mindset of saying, like, mothers are inherently more sympathetic than fathers when it comes to that there's the scene I guess probably about midway through the film where Elio and his girlfriend almost go all the way but he doesn't do it and then he comes back kind of boasting to his dad trying to make I guess Oliver jealous that it is, it is meant to make him jealous yeah that you know I, we could have had sex but I, I chose not to you know and it, it was just it was such a weird thing because at that point I didn't think that uh, Elio and his father were that frank about about sexuality but I mean I guess if their parents are that progressive then it's probably nothing and it could just be my type of upbringing like I could just never picture going to my parents and be like, you know, I almost scored last night, but I chose not to. Well, I think I think a lot of people roll their eyes because this movie sets up the fact that his parents are intellectual. You know, they're college professors, and, and they have this whole, like, academic nature. You know, they're reading German fairy tales. Oliver, or Elio, is compelled to play music, you know, to, to look impressive. And it, it is this kind of pretentiousness to to everything. Um, but I do, I do like the angle brought up. I, I promoted this to a friend who hadn't seen it yet, I was like, it's all about longing. You know, it's this 
really great throwback and building off of classic cinema, you know, where it's all about proximity and it's all about this concept of delayed gratification. And I mean, this movie is like thirst inducing for, for half of the movie because it's all about watching these two characters kind of dance around literally in one scene, their, their interest in each other. So like, I, I love the scene with the volleyball game where, where Oliver tries to, to touch him and Elio freaks out and they kind of did, but the, the whole concept of like, even when they, the two finally consummate things, it's just them kind of just sitting there and like touching and not really doing anything until a certain point. But I love that. You know, I love that it's not, and I know the movie again took flat for not showing sex, which it could have done really, you know, and it, and it could have really helped. I, I talked to a friend of mine who's, who's gay, who said he really wished they had because so much of, of gay sex is still, still focused in the porn world. And it would have been nice to see a movie show that, you know, no, you can just film a sex scene between two men, you know, no different than if it was heterosexual sex. And I get that. But for me, I think what the movie does so well is, again, it harkens back to that classic film sensibility where it's just the anticipation can be hot. You know, just the concept of like being near someone can be erotic in some way without actually showing it. So I think it works for me. But again, I mean, th that's a criticism that I, I is very valid. For me, the anticipation and the thirstiness of not just the two main characters, but it seems like everyone when Oliver oh, yeah. comes it, to it, town, it, like <laughs> you have, uh, and I'm forgetting her name, but the woman that's on the dance floor, like she's the one that tries to stake her claim first when they're playing volleyball. All the young women are just, they see him and they're like, wow, you know, he, it's like almost like he's walking on water when he comes there. And it could just be because he's the foreigner, the outsider, you know, sometimes what you don't normally see is a little more tempting, but there's a lot of thirsty people in this particular film. But I think all that anticipation makes the the heartbreak at the end so much more palpable and you know I to this day I still get a little emotional seeing him just kind of staring at the, the fireplace at the end it's a very quiet scene of Elio just thinking and you could just feel the heartbreak and there's parts in the film where um, I, I think it was after the peach scene where Elio says something to like you know why why are you doing this to me why are you hurting me so and it's that build up the anticipation but also knowing that the future that you, you hope you might have may not come through because this guy is going to eventually leave to go back to America and you know that the heartbreak is coming and the heartbreak is so real. I do want to break down really briefly. So we got to talk uh, Marcia, who's the girl that is in this love triangle who likes Elio and she's great. I felt very bad for her because she cannot read the room and Elio is kind of a dick to her. Yeah, he is. He really is. Although I do like that this is the second movie with Timothy Chalamet where he's had sex with a girl and it was incredibly disappointing. <laughs> so I thought that it was it was just as funny here as it was in Lady Bird. So there's that. And we, we should mention, I, I still get very upset that, that Timothy Chalamet did not win the Oscar. I'm sorry to people who love Gary Oldman, but whatever. Because, yeah, that, that whole extended sequence at the end with the Sufjan Stevens song, who I love the soundtrack to this movie so much. The fact that he's able to do that is just fantastic. And it all culminates with him kind of breaking the fourth wall and looking at the audience. I love that scene. So it just, it stops my heart for a second. And we should mention the peach scene before the 
this ends, because I think that's what everybody knows, whether you've seen the movie or not. Have you read the book? No, I hadn't read the book, so the scene caught me off guard. So yeah, I've read the book. I read the book with Army Hammer audio. He he did the audiobook, so I, I definitely recommend watching the movie, then reading the audiobook, because Army Hammer, I mean, if you thought the movie was hot, the audiobook is better, because he, it's just all his voice. But somebody told me when the movie came out at Sundance, they were like, there's a scene in this movie that is gonna shock people and I was like what the hell and they're like it's about peaches and I was like what the hell can you do with a peach well then I bought the book like right away and I read it and I was like oh my god and if you read the book with the audio book with Army Hammer reading it like the man is committed but so I, I watched it in the in the film I mean the book gets a bit more graphic with this kind of the scatological um, stuff that happens in there I think the movie does it about as I'm gonna use a bad term tastefully as one can get it is what it is but I think most people who watch the movie fall very cleanly into two camps which is whether he should have eaten it or not I didn't realize that was a debate oh yeah there's a huge debate some people say Army Hammer would have gotten that Academy Award nomination had he eaten it and and according to my friend who I talked to who is gay he was like no that's a that's a big thing like you know the consumption of bodily fluid in you know gay sexuality he's like that's you know that's like the ultimate sign of like togetherness I was like oh I'm learning a whole new thing here so so my friend was disappointed that he didn't eat it my other friend who watched it with me at AFI Fest said that if he had she would have left because she's like I wouldn't have been able to handle that so I think it really says a lot about the audience member how they feel about it yeah there's a whole whole community of people online that you can you can find who will debate this with you wow now i feel so so <laughs> sheltered because it didn't it didn't like had he eaten it i would have been all right the scene itself initially was was shocking and then his reaction to it because i'm thinking elio at that point is probably like super embarrassed and had he eaten it i would have been like okay you know he's showing that he cares for him but i, I it never dawned on me that it carried such greater significance yeah i did not know that as well i i will say it's a testament to army hammer's acting i don't think he gets enough credit for the humor of his character and just that whole scene is very humorous before it gets very serious but yeah it's if you have if you wish that he had read the audiobook because he does in the book army hammer will read that scene to you if you if you really feel strongly about it i, I honestly don't even know where to go after that <laughs> there you go yeah <laughs> Uh, was there anything else that you want to talk about regarding this film that we haven't mentioned? Army Hammer's bathing suits are a thing of beauty. That's all I got. <laughs> well, I know people talk about the reconnaissance, but I feel like he's just doing a lot of good work. And I don't know if he's fully getting recognized for all the stuff that he does. And I, th I thought he was even really good in um, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., which I know... Great in that movie. Yeah, Army Hammer is, is very interesting as a personality in, in cinema right now. I don't know if you read the article that Anne Helen Peterson wrote for BuzzFeed that she got roasted for pretty much saying that like army hammers the typical white guy who's only successful because he's wealthy and white and and yeah i mean if somebody had told me five years ago that the guy from the lone range was gonna be a great actor and that i would love him i would have laughed in your face you know i do agree because of his looks he will always have a career in Hollywood, but I, I just feel that like with this film, again, I enjoyed him in The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Sorry to bother you. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't like Free Fire. Free Fire is thrown on me. It's, he's the best part, I think, of Free Fire. Him and Brie Larson are really good. He's great in Sorry to Bother You. 
I think of like other actors like Sam Worthington and uh, oh, Taylor. Yeah. Was it Taylor Kitsch who did John Carter? Yeah. And um, Aaron Taylor Johnson, like all these young actors that were supposed to be quote unquote the next big thing, and then their careers didn't survive certain debacles. I know Aaron Taylor Johnson is starting to get more cred now, being or a, a, a character actor, if you will. But you know, there's certain people like Arnie Hammer, especially when Lone Ranger came out, he was supposed to be the next big guy, and then that film bombed, and his career took a bit of a dip, but he was still able to work. Like there's there's certain actors that can do it. I just think now he's starting to do more interesting roles and and really starting to take risk and. But I think the important thing to remember is that we gave Ryan Reynolds how many shots to find his niche before he was Deadpool, and so I yeah I feel like Army Hammer was almost freaking Batman. I think we forget that part, you know? He was he was almost Batman. So I, I'm very excited. I still dream of a world where he could be Batman one day. <laughs> if we're going to talk about diversity in cinema, it's kind of a testament to just the way how studios are built now that guys like Ryan Reynolds or Army Hammer will get multiple chances, you know? And other actors, actors of color, actors with disability, female actors, they don't necessarily get the same opportunities, you know? So it's, on one hand, it's great that he's doing um, wonderful things and as we said we both love this film we think he's wonderful and I think he's got a great career ahead of him but I still think he has a little bit of an advantage in terms that he you know he's allowed to make a few more flops than than other actors would yeah Chris where can people find you you can find me predominantly on Twitter at journeys underscore film excellent and also remember she's the unofficial best friend of the rock just throwing it out there <laughs> let's make it happen people you can find me on Twitter at small mind uh, you can contact the show on Twitter at changing reels AC Rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you, you find us. And remember, you can change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time. It's been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.